Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and tonight you'll hear a conversation with Dr. Donald Lannan. Dr. Lannan is professor of surgical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Don, you know, you're one of the more senior surgeons. You've been around for a while. Tell us a little bit about how breast cancer screening and management has kind of changed over your professional career. Well, it's changed tremendously. I finished my residency in 1982, so I've been doing this for 33 years. And uh, for at least 30 of those 33 years, I've participated in some kind of breast cancer awareness during the month of October. But I feel that in the past, especially the first 15 years I did it, our message was primarily about awareness, that we had the feeling at that time that people weren't really aware of the risk of breast cancer, and as a result, they presented rather late in the course of the disease. And we were very optimistic that by increasing awareness, we could promote earlier detection and uh, hopefully uh, prevent some of the late-stage disease and the deaths from breast cancer. And did that work? I mean, it seems that these days, a lot of women know about breast cancer. I mean, in October, everywhere you go, everything is pink. Yes. I think really uh, it's time to change a little bit the the idea of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You know, as you mentioned, almost all women now are aware of it. And if anything, there's a, a myth about you know, people overvalue the merits of early detection. So early detection is uh, still of some benefit. I'm not saying screening and early detection isn't of any benefit, but we realize now the benefit's pretty small. And uh, I think in breast cancer awareness now, we should focus more on education. People should develop more of a realistic expectation for what early awareness and prevention can, or early detection can accomplish, and realize that we really need to focus on, you know, understanding the biology and the treatment for disease. So, Don, you know, you're opening a whole can of worms that I think a lot of our listeners have heard about in the past and actually causes quite a lot of public outcry. Yes. So let's talk, first of all, about screening. Um, so what are the standard recommendations for getting a mammogram? I mean, we've heard everything from every woman over the age of 40 should get a mammogram on an annual basis to hearing things from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force that maybe women over the age of 75 might want to consider not, maybe women under the age of 40 or even 50 might not want to have a mammogram every year. Some countries uh, say that you should get a mammogram once every two years. Tell us a little bit about what you tell patients and, and what really are the merits or, or things that we need to consider when we're thinking about getting a mammogram. Well, 
I still think that getting a mammogram yearly is probably reasonable. The public's become accustomed to that, and it's well accepted, and I don't see a big reason to change it, although I do think getting it every two years is probably, you know, almost as good as getting it every year, and uh, so I think it's an individual decision, and certainly, you know, women under 50 or over 75, you know, the data is just not there that it's terribly beneficial, and, uh, you know, so I think people may or may not decide to get it. Okay. So, so you know, when we look at the randomized controlled trials, because there are yeah. randomized controlled trials that show that mammograms actually do have a benefit, the vast majority, as you say, of the benefit is in that 50 to 70-year-old group. And yes. many of the trials actually showed that the benefit was with every two-year screening. So for those listeners who are wondering, where did all of this controversy come from? Um, that's really where some of it came from. Although usually the standard recommendation, and I agree with you, Don, you know, we still recommend annual screening mammography over the age of 40. But I agree with you yeah. too, that it needs to be tailored a bit, especially when you're creeping up in age and I always tell patients, you have to wonder whether if you're going to do something on the basis of that mammogram, then the mammogram's worth getting. That's correct. And I think we're becoming aware of the fact that overdiagnosis of breast cancer is a real issue. It's been estimated that about 30% of all the breast cancers we treat probably would do fine if we never found them and, and treated them. And that's a, a pretty big number. So that uh, that's a direct consequence of not only screening, but also generalized awareness and the fact that women now uh, get biopsies, you know, very for very uh, limited uh, indications. And it's sometimes I think we almost uh, are fishing. We're kind of, uh, you know, throwing out these needles looking for something. And if you do that, you're, we're going to find some things that probably aren't terribly significant. So, you know, this whole concept of overdiagnosis is something, a term that a lot of people, I think, especially in our listening audience, may not understand. I mean, for a lot of people, finding cancer, a diagnosis is a diagnosis. What the heck is overdiagnosis? Can you define that for us? Yes, it's actually important to realize that the difference between overdiagnosis and just false positives from screening. So if a woman gets screened with mammography or physical exam or anything else, one of the risks has been known for many years is that they may have an abnormality and then you biopsy it and it's not a cancer. That's that's just a false positive. And women are pretty willing to accept, you know, a, a rate of false positive unnecessary biopsy. Biopsies. But overdiagnosis is when you biopsy something that turns out to be a cancer, but it's actually a cancer that would never progress and never bother the woman in the rest of her life. But, of course, the difficult thing is we don't know with certainty which are those overdiagnosed cancers. So almost all patients with breast cancer end up having surgery, radiation, and some kind of drug therapy. And in many cases, they would probably do just as well as if we had if we'd never found the cancer to begin with. So, so as you point out, the real issue is that you don't know which is which. Which are the cancers that you find early and you know what, thank goodness you did because that would progress and potentially have some really negative side effects. 
and which are the ones that, you know, if you left them alone, they would do just fine. For a lot of patients who may be listening and their families, they all think, you know what, thank goodness we caught that cancer early because we don't know if we would have been in the bucket where leaving a cancer there would have been just fine. And many people may not like the idea of finding a cancer and saying, oh, that's likely nothing. Well, that's right. I think one of the areas where we need a lot more research is understanding the molecular nature and uh, factors that will give us that information about the true risk of a cancer progressing. And uh, at this point, it is very difficult to tell a patient, well, this is probably a cancer. It'll never bother you. We'll just leave it alone. Patients wouldn't be happy with that. And and I'm not quite ready to tell patients that. But uh, I think we still don't want to bury our heads to the problem. I mean, the problem still exists that we need to uh, develop ways to identify which cancers won't progress and then uh, hopefully not treat them. And and I think there's quite a bit of controversy right now about which cancers are in this group of overdiagnosed cancers. Some people think that they're just DCIS. That's a non-invasive in situ cancer. But my feeling is that actually uh, there are most of the time, small, low-grade invasive cancers, and that certainly the grade 1 DCIS is probably overdiagnosed. But I think the real value in mammography is detecting the grade 3 DCIS before it becomes invasive. And uh, I think, you know, the main reason I would still not want women to give up mammography is because I think that's actually a very important thing to to, to remove the grade 3 DCIS before it becomes invasive. But maybe uh, look more clear closely at other kinds of cancers, especially the low-grade DCIS, and maybe even some of the low-grade invasive cancers to start understanding whether, in fact, they have any long-term implications if left in situ? Is that what you're kind of thinking? That's exactly what I'm thinking. I think there's many of these low-grade cancers that, uh, you know, we find just by accident with the screening that, you know, wouldn't ever bother the patient in the next 20, 30 years. And uh, somehow I think we have to uh, be able to identify those and and treat them much less aggressively. So kind of like prostate cancer where, you know, we, when we talk about people uh, who may not be happy to keep a cancer in situ, there's a lot of men out there who have prostate cancer who are following this wait and watch approach um, because a lot of their prostate cancers are really pretty indolent. That's exactly right. And I think breast cancer and prostate cancer have a lot of similarities and that certainly is one of them. I think we probably need to develop categories of women that where we can do watchful waiting. And and uh, from what I understand, the results in prostate cancer are actually quite satisfactory with that approach. Yeah. So do you know of any, any studies or any tests that are, you know, either in research or in development that are looking at that, maybe genomic markers that can kind of give us a clue? I mean, is this something that we're going to see come to clinical trials in the next few years, or is this kind of just an idea that's percolating around in academicians' minds? Well, both. I think there are starting to be trials for grade 1 DCIS, and uh, that's certainly a place to start. But uh, as I mentioned, I think the problem goes beyond that. I think it's the low-grade invasive cancers as well. And I'm not aware of any trials at this point uh, 
testing a watch and wait philosophy for those, but I, I think they will need to be developed over the next several years. So let's shift gears a little bit as we talk about overdiagnosis to other screening modalities. You know, when we talk about MRI, um, a lot of women, especially historically, uh, were really um, interested in pursuing MRI as a really sensitive test to find cancers early. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, it seems to me that some MRIs may find results kind of like you were saying with finding needles out there and and catching fish that you may not want to catch. That's exactly right. We went through a phase uh, 10 years ago where we thought the key was to have more sensitive detection so that we could catch early cancers earlier. And MRI was certainly a very promising modality for that. But uh, so about five to seven years ago, we used MRI quite extensively. And what we found is it really didn't seem to make that much difference. So now we actually use a lot less MRIs than we did just a few years ago for that reason. So when should patients get an MRI? I mean, should anybody get an MRI or are these tests just too sensitive? Are there some patients in whom we should be ordering MRIs and other patients in whom we shouldn't? Well, I think that has to be an individual choice. And there's some women whose breasts are so dense on mammogram and they, and they have a cancer that you can uh, evaluate the extent of the cancer better with an MRI. But I think that's a pretty small percent. And then there's uh, women who have BRCA mutations that we know are at real high risk to get a cancer. And so it's become pretty well established that if they're not going to undergo prophylactic mastectomy, that MRI is a reasonable way to monitor and screen these women. However, I would caution that there's no uh, data that that's effective. And it's certainly, you know, at probably at best would be similar to mammography, where we might uh, reduce the mortality from breast cancer about 20%. So I think it's a, a uh, difficult question for a woman to weigh that compared to prophylactic mastectomy that reduces at about 95%. So lots of controversy with regards to overdiagnosis and are we screening too much, too little, or just right? We're going to talk a lot more about this after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about breast cancer with my guest, Dr. Donald Lannon. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Donald Lannon. Right before the break, we were talking about breast cancer, and more specifically, we were talking about screening, this concept of overdiagnosis that has been heard about in the media, whether we're doing too much, too little, or just right, and whether, in fact, some breast cancers may actually do just fine, even if not treated. So, Don, I think one of the questions is going to be for women who may be particularly scared about a diagnosis of breast cancer that may be rendered and who may be thinking, geez, I just don't want to get this treated. Maybe, just maybe, this is something that isn't going to hurt me. How do you feel about that? How would you advise women? Do you think that they can wait and watch and not get treated, thinking that they may be an overdiagnosed case? Or do you think that we're too early to make that kind of call? I think the woman needs to see a very experienced treatment team to help with those sort of decisions. I would hate to, uh, you know, belittle the effectiveness of treatment so that, uh, you know, talking on a radio show, I, I certainly wouldn't want to give the message to to the vast majority of breast cancer patients not to worry about treatment because that would be the wrong message. But I think uh, more and more a, a sophisticated treatment team can come up with a, a little better idea which cases are likely to be overdiagnosed and which cases may do quite well without at least aggressive treatment. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, at this point, um, for women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, you really do want to get that treated with an experienced team to figure out what treatment therapies might be right for you. And a lot of therapies actually are not very toxic. And as we pointed out before the break, there may be really interesting clinical trials that are seeking to minimize therapy for those cancers that may be overdiagnosed. And always talking to your doctor about participation in clinical trials might be something really worth thinking about. So Don, let's move a little bit into therapies. Do you think What are the therapies that are available for women with breast cancers, especially early breast cancers today? Um, Do you think that there have been changes over the course of your professional career in terms of how we treat patients? Are we doing more? Are we doing less? Should we be doing more? Should we be doing less? Or have we reached the sweet spot right now? Well, there's been tremendous changes over the 33 years I've been doing breast surgery. You know, when I trained Almost every patient was treated with a modified radical mastectomy. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, a a big movement was to uh, go back to doing lumpectomies and and more minimally invasive uh, surgeries. And then in the – even then, however – axillary dissection was the standard. We removed the lymph nodes on every patient. And then in the late 90s and early 2000s, sentinel node biopsy came along, and we became much uh, more or less aggressive in terms of removing nodes in the axilla. And that's a trend that continues today, and I think it's a good trend because that uh, does reduce quite a bit of morbidity, and uh, the treatment uh, seems to be just as effective without the axillary dissection in most cases. So we're doing less surgery, but what about other modes of therapy? Are we doing less radiation, less chemotherapy, less hormonal therapy, or are we compensating for the less surgery with more of other things? To some extent, I think we probably are. 
especially with radiation. And and in some cases, I'm not sure that's actually a good trend. I, I wouldn't want to replace good surgery with bad surgery and radiation. So I don't think we want to depend on, on those other modalities instead of good surgery. But uh, the truth is we, we do have very effective drug therapy now for breast cancer, and more and more we're getting very good targeted therapy that is uh, biological in nature and, and uh, many times much less toxic than we used to think of as, as chemotherapy. Do you think that more patients are getting chemotherapy these days than in the past? Uh, I think so, yes, and uh, especially uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We give a lot of chemotherapy now before surgery, and that's uh, a trend that's gone up dramatically in the last seven or eight years and and I think uh, has several advantages. Like what? Well, one is you get an idea whether the chemotherapy is working so that, uh, you know, you can maybe avoid chemotherapy that's, that's not as likely to work. But it then if it works, it gives you a lot of information about the prognosis of the patient and may uh, allow other subsequent treatments, and there are certainly trials of that going on. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, I agree with you. We've seen a lot more patients being treated with systemic chemotherapy or targeted therapies, but in large part, it's because I think we've had a lot more effective therapies when we think about the new biologic treatments that we have. Um, you know, patients do incredibly well with this, and so you'd hate to deny patients um, a really effective systemic therapy where you, where you can offer it. What do you think about radiation therapy? Do you think we're doing more of that or less? Uh, I think we're doing more, and uh, it's becoming uh, – there's some categories of patients that I think probably would do well without radiation, but they're getting radiation just uh, because no one wants to take a chance on you know, not giving it. And uh, I think there are some uh, – new biological tests coming along that that may help us tailor radiation a little more specifically and uh I think that's going to be very important in the future. Yeah, so there's a clinical trial ongoing at Yale um, where we're looking at that and genomic signatures, particularly in patients with DCIS, to kind of determine whether those patients would benefit from radiation or not. You know, I think it's interesting the trend in radiation went from standard radiation to uh, accelerated partial breast irradiation to hypofractionated irradiation to extended fields. Uh, talk a little bit about that progression and uh, how you see that trend, which, uh, you know, if you mapped it out, it kind of looks like the Rocky Mountains a bit. It does, and I guess that's one, you know, my perspective after 33 years may be a little different because these things come around in circles, and I've seen it, uh, you know, we almost never used to give radiation after mastectomy, and, uh, you know, now uh, that's very common, actually, and and these things go around in circles. Yeah. So I guess coming back to surgery, you know, you talked about really doing less and less surgery, going from modified radical mastectomies to lumpectomies and sentinel node biopsies. But the other trend that we've seen that's a bit like going around in circles again is more and more patients are opting for mastectomy and prophylactic mastectomy nationally. Have you seen that trend? And what do you think about that? 
Yeah, that's absolutely a trend. You know, we went in the 80s and 90s from uh, less mastectomy and more lumpectomy, and now in the 2000s, there seems to be a definite trend going back more to mastectomy and, and especially bilateral prophylactic mastectomy. There's probably a number of drivers for that. One is... Uh, our, our imaging modalities are so sensitive that uh, things like MRI do pick up a lot of little abnormalities that make patients nervous. So is this and, one of those sequelae of the overdiagnosis that you were talking about? That's uh, part of it, certainly. Now, another part of it is we're much better at genetic testing and finding women that really are at high risk to get a second breast cancer. And to the extent we can do that, I think the prophylactic mastectomy is very appropriate. But, uh, you know, it is definitely a trend that women nowadays, especially young women, don't want to worry about breast cancer the rest of their life. And rightly or wrongly, they have the opinion that if they remove both breasts, they aren't going to have to worry. Yeah, that's true. And I think the other thing that has happened is not only do they not need to worry, they generally don't need to have another mammogram or MRI, which they may have been having every year or every six months, especially if they had a BRCA mutation. And we actually have really good plastic surgery now and reconstructive techniques, which I think makes a difference for a lot of women. That's completely true. I think that is one of the drivers, is the reconstructions now are so good that uh, it's not the mutilating procedure it was thought of as 20 years ago. Yeah. So are there particular populations of patients that you think are particularly at risk that, you know, in those patients, you really want to be very vigilant about screening? Um you know, when we talk about disparities in terms of different racial groups or different ethnic groups, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, uh, it's sort of two questions. One is the risk factors. And, you know, high-risk women, the sort of assumption is that they would do better with screening, but yet there's really no data that screening works better on high-risk women. It's kind of more of a hope than anything else. But then there's other groups, and particularly the African-American women, that uh, are they, – they have a, kind of a triple whammy. They have uh, just everything against them in terms of breast cancer. If you look at African-American women, they have a much higher incidence of triple negative cancers and of what high What is grade. that? What, what is triple negative, so, just for our listeners? Yeah, so triple negative cancer is a cancer that lacks the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 receptor. And that sort of simple signature correlates with a lot of other gene changes that that make that cancer particularly fast-growing and particularly aggressive. Now, African-American women, biologically, for reasons we don't understand, are at much higher risk for triple-negative cancers than, than most other racial ethnic groups. So that's the first whammy. But then the second whammy is they do tend to present with more advanced-stage cancer. And part of that is, biologically, it's more aggressive, so of course it's going to present when it's later. But there is still some socioeconomic uh, disadvantage that may uh, inhibit at least some, some of the African-American 
American women from getting access to, to care as quickly. So they have bad cancers to begin with. They present with uh, later stage disease. And then the third whammy that we're just learning, and we actually have an article coming out in a next month or so that I can't give the specifics because until it's published, but it looks like African-American women don't respond as well to chemotherapy. And that's something that we don't really know why that is, but but it seems true that that they don't respond as well. And uh, I I'm hopeful that that's going to lead to a lot of new stimulus and a lot of new work to look at why that is, and and perhaps we need trials of specific drugs just in African American women because they may respond to some other drugs better. We just don't know. But the the drugs that are currently in use, they don't seem to respond as well. You know, Don, that makes me think about um, African-American women in clinical trials. I mean, we know that there's been a, a sad history of African-Americans and clinical trials, which I think has largely dissipated now that we have significant regulation with regards to the ethics of clinical trials. But... When African Americans do not participate in clinical trials, by definition, the drugs that get approved get approved on the basis of data of the patients who participate in those trials, who may be largely Caucasian. And so what you're telling me makes me think that maybe um, there are drugs that would be better suited to African Americans that we just simply don't know about because we may be lacking African American participation in clinical trials. I think that's absolutely right, and that's a big problem. And we may need trials specifically for African-American women because, uh, you know, having 12, 15 percent African-American women in a trial may not be enough to uh, tease out, you know, different uh, racial effects. Dr. Donald Lannon is professor of surgical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.